0: By this morning, uh, we're going to think about the story of Ehud and Eglon, Judges chapter 3 and verse 12. Children, um, there are sheets for you to help you along with clipboards um, for some, take some notes and colouring. It is an exciting story and a strange story, but a wonderful story. So um, let's hear the word of the Holy Spirit as we listen to Judges 3, beginning at verse 12. Uh, The situation is that uh, God's people, that the Israelites have got into the land that God has given them. Uh, But they haven't yet fully conquered it. They're in, but a lot of it still remains to be conquered. And so they, they keep drifting away from God. So verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they'd done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, "'I have a secret message for you, O king.' And he commanded, silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, He did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the excrement came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he'd gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. A strange story, but part of God's word. So let's pray as we come to it. Our Father in heaven, we come uh, before you again and pray in your mercy that you would feed us as we come before you in the garden, uh, as we come uh, in faith and repentance, as we come clothed in the Lord Jesus. uh, Would you lay out a banquet for us as you run towards us? Would you feed us, strengthen us, give us new joy, new hope? Uh, Bless us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name, and for his glory alone. Amen. Uh, your phone buzzes. A text comes up. It's an unknown number, a withheld number. It simply says, I know. I know your secret. What do you feel? There's a story told. It's one of these stories that I've heard in sermons for about 20 years now, so I have no idea if it's true. But it's a great story nonetheless. A story told of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, He wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. He apparently, back in his day, sent telegrams, old-fashioned letters, children, uh, sent telegrams uh, to uh, a dozen of the most famous men in London. And the telegram simply said, all is known, flee. And so the story goes, half of them by the next morning had fled the country. Again, no idea if it's true. But, But it speaks to a deep sense of guilt that we all feel. I mean, how would you feel? Honestly, if you got a message, you know, a letter, an email uh, that, that said, "I know, I know your secret, I know your dirty secret," and all is about to be revealed. I know what you're really like." I suppose a few of us could, could laugh it off, maybe. But, but I think many of us would, would flush that the heat would come to our, our cheeks, that the heart would just begin to, to palpitate a little bit, we, our mind would start racing. perhaps it would go to something in the past something we thought everybody had forgotten, something we did when we were younger, something we're deeply shamed about. We'd hope the kind of passing of time had hidden it, but it's still able to make us flush with shame. Perhaps for others, it would be something ongoing, something we know we're we're doing, that we'd be deeply embarrassed if anyone else found out about, something we've hidden even from those closest to us, our, our wives, our husbands, our parents, And we fear. Perhaps there's even something in our thought life. We start wondering, did I give myself away? Did I give myself away with that look? Has someone understood how I really think about them? Has someone seen my internet history? We are people who are haunted by shame and guilt. This story... Of Eglon and Ehud, strange as it is, uh, speaks to that shame and that guilt. And believe it or not, in the story about a fat king who gets stamped by a left-handed Israelite man, there is good news. There is good news. i trying to look at two things pretty simply this morning. Uh, first of all, the shame of God's people. Uh, verses 12 through 14 in the passage, the shame of God's people. Uh, Israel are the people of God's children. They're a bit like the church before Jesus. Okay, so this imagine these are the people who would be gathering each week to to praise God, or should be. So these people of Israel, the church before Jesus, they in verse 12, they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that's a special phrase in the book of Judges. It doesn't just mean they were a bit naughty or it means they turn to other gods. If we'd read the whole book, which we might do sometime, we'd see that doing evil in the sight of the Lord means turning to other idols. They have swapped gods and so begins this pattern that actually would see time and time again in the book of judges where where Israel God's people turn away from the Lord Uh, they rebel and then there's there's retribution God punishes them for it Uh, what does the Lord do the Lord strengthens verse 12 Eglon the king of Moab okay a foreign king to conquer them And Eglon comes in and totally destroys uh, the Israelites. It is a total victory for the enemies of God's people. And it's a particularly shaming victory. Again, because we're not Israelites, because we, we're perhaps not brilliant on the story of the Old Testament, we, we, we miss some of the little hints in there that, that actually this defeat will be utterly humiliating for God's people. There's all sorts of little details. Think about e, um, Eglon, sorry. Eglon himself. See verse 17? Well, what is Eglon like, children? Okay, if you had to draw a picture of Eglon, the, the bad king, what's he like? Do you see verse 17? Eglon was a very fat man, okay? So don't think of kind of, I was going to say Arnold Schwarzenegger. I better have a date there, aren't I? Okay, don't think of a sort of muscly hero, um, Captain America. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Think of Jabba the Hutt, okay? Eglon was a huge, fat man. They've not been defeated by some amazing warrior. They've been defeated by this big, fat man. It's embarrassing. Eglon is king of the Ammonites and the Merbites. Now, again, there there are all these tribes in the Old Testament, aren't there? You you hear about all these tribes and they just jumble together. But the Ammonites and the Merbites were kind of distant relations of the Israelites. They were descended from Lot. Remember, Lot was Abraham's nephew, they were descended from Lot when his daughters slept with him. So these are the descendants of a kind of incestuous family. Okay? They're sort of seen as unclean. We've lost to those Lot. He pals up in verse 13. So it's not just the Ammonites, but also the Amalekites. Now the Amalekites are the first tribe, when Israel came into the land, they're the first tribe that, that, that Israel beat. Okay? And now they're losing to them. These are the guys that Israel have conquered, and now we're losing. Okay? This is like i trying to think of a, a non-offensive analogy. So um, this is like England losing to France at cricket, okay? okay. England to France at oh, cricket. Okay, we'll lose at rugby, we'll lose at football, but cricket, come on, not to France. Oh, where do the, the baddies who conquer them set up camp? Well, in the city of Palms. It's called Anniversary 13, the city of Palms, or Jericho, as we, we often call it. Again, Jericho is the... The first city that Israel conquered, Remember the great story when they marched around the walls and it all fell down, and they took Jericho, it was a sign they were going to conquer the whole promised land. And now Jericho has gone. Okay, this would be like Hitler appearing on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. Okay. This kind of place that is symbolic of your nation, and the baddies are there. So you can imagine the shame, and on and on it went. It lasted 18 years, we're told, 18 years of subjection to the fat king Eglon, these unclean Amalekites, and Ammonites. Again, you sort of read over, but just imagine the sniggering. Okay, you're trying to be a faithful believer, for example. Or imagine if you were trying to be a faithful believer in those days. You've read that, about you know, the Lord your God, Yahweh, who's meant to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet, you're having to hide in fear from these poxy little tribes who've beaten you up. Do you sometimes feel like that yourself? You you, you read in in Revelation that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the one who conquers uh, the whole earth. He sat enthroned above. And then you come on a Sunday morning to a not totally beautiful building and sit with 40, 50, 60, 70 people. It doesn't feel like it's a great victory doesn't feel like we're children of the one who rules all, all things. Someone asks you about your weekend or your faith and, and we just feel shame. We know we shouldn't, but we, we do. And then in verse 19, we read that the idols that Israel have turned to are set up at Gilgal. Gilgal. <laughs> literally means the place where our shame was taken away. It was the place where Israel, uh, when they came into land, were, were circumcised. This sign of being dedicated to God, this very, this very place that was meant to be symbolic of their dedication to the Lord is where they've set up their false gods. It is a total shaming. It's like St Paul's Cathedral, or Westminster Abbey becoming a mosque. Okay, the the centre of a religious devotion to the Lord, dedicated to other gods. Total shame, total humiliation. Now, these stories of the judges are strange. Each, if you read through the book, if you've ever read it through it before, they're odd. And each judge is, is often odd in a different way. They're judges, by the way, not meaning a sort of judge like we have them today with a wig and deciding court cases. They do a little bit of that, but mainly they're kind of military leaders. And each one of them, in some way, is meant to point us towards Jesus and the gospel. Um, So that's where we're going, but but, but it won't make sense until we've we've been able to identify with God's people here. Until we can see ourselves, or resemblances of ourselves at least, among the people of Israel, then the kind of rescue that Ehud brings won't feel particularly powerful to us. It'll just be a quaint story from the Old Testament, perhaps even a puzzle we'd like to solve so we can find out how it points us to Jesus and then we've conquered Judges 3, but that's not what what we're about, is it? What we need is good news. What we need is the Lord to speak to us through this passage. And that's why I want to label this point of shame. The people of Israel here felt shame. Or rather, they were shamed. We don't know actually what they felt, do we? Until eventually, they cry out. Sometimes we talk about guilt, Uh, don't we? Uh, Guilt, to be guilty... It is to have broken God's objective rules. Guilt is an objective thing. It's just true. If if you you disobey God, you rebel against God, you are guilty. It is objective. You might feel it, you might not, but you simply are guilty. And all of us are guilty, naturally. None of us live for God as we should. Shame, I think, it's more about the response to that guilt. Almost the emotional response, we might say. Now, Now, I want to clarify here that I'm not talking about false Shame. Sometimes people feel, it's horrendous, but people feel shame because they've been the victims of horrible things and they've done nothing wrong. There is no guilt. They have done nothing wrong whatsoever and yet still we can have this sense of shame because we have been on the receiving end of someone else's sin. The Lord is kind and humble and gentle and welcomes you to him if that is him. He understands you. And it's really important you know that you are not guilty for other people's sin. And so when I speak about shame today, that is not what I'm talking about. Uh, This is a shame that that goes with guilt. A shame because God's people have turned to idols. Uh, This is the feeling of humiliation, we might almost say, when we know we are guilty. And it's incredibly destructive. This this deep sense of guilt and shame can be so destructive. One writer Ed Welsh says this that guilt lives in the law court, but shame in the community. And what he's trying to get at is the fact that when when we really feel this kind of right shame, it is this shame that's linked to guilt, it it tends to be shown in how we, we react to others. Shame lives in the community. What's he saying? He's saying that when we feel this kind of shame, our reaction is often to be a bit like Adam and Eve and hide not just from God, but from each other. Again, the story we had earlier in the service children, but Adam and Eve, they put loincloths on because they were ashamed to look at each other, ashamed about themselves. They hid not just from God in the bushes, but with these fig leaves sort of skirts from each other. And guilt and shame can do that, can't they? When you feel particularly crushed, by Your sin, particularly shamed by it, you want to hide from others. I don't want to go to a small group and have someone say, How are you doing? I don't want to open my Bible and, and, as it were, meet God because I'm too embarrassed, too ashamed. I one, one girl not up here in Leeds when I was serving elsewhere uh, who'd been. Well, he professed faith, had uh, started following Christ seemingly and then fell into some, uh, I suppose, fairly serious sin and stopped coming to church. And eventually I was able to talk with her and, and just chat things through. And she said, look, I just feel, I feel too guilty to come to church. I'm too ashamed to come to church. That's tragic, isn't it? That's tragic. And it's potentially tragic if we as a church had sort of projected an atmosphere where people who felt guilty and shamed weren't feeling safe. That would be tragic. I don't know if that was the case. I hope it wasn't. But it's certainly tragic if we feel so crossed by our shame and guilt that we won't come to the place where we can hear about freedom and forgiveness and mercy. Shame is a killer. It keeps us from others and it keeps us, of course, from God. The gap between 1300 BC or so, when Ehud and Eglon strode around Israel. And 2021 in Leeds. is perhaps not as big as we thought. God's people know what it is to be ashamed. But thankfully, we see not just the shame of God's people, but the shame of God's Saviour. And bizarrely, that is the good news in this passage the shame of God's Saviour. Uh, so, what happens? Okay, John, let's get back to the story. How, how does God sort this out? Verse 15 the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They need help. They've been conquered and they need help. Eventually they say, look, we've done wrong. We shouldn't have turned to these other gods. We shouldn't have ignored you, Lord. Help. And God doesn't say, well, on your own head be it. That's your fault, isn't it? Now you get yourself out of the mess. No, God is merciful and kind. And so he raises them up, a deliverer. He sends them a hero. And it's Ehud, the Benjamite, a left-handed Man. Now, already Ehud is sounding strange, or he would sound strange to an Israelite. Ehud is part of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand. Okay? And so, Ehud is a left handed son of my right hand. Okay? It's a jumble already. And being left handed children in battle is a bit useless. Okay? It's a bit of a pain. Because if everyone else is fighting with their right hand, okay, and you're left handed, the danger is you're going to get stabbed. But we're told Ehud is a left-handed man, and there are no wasted words in the Bible. So what's going on? Well, uh, Ehud makes for himself a sword with two edges, about a cubit in length. It's about the length of the school rule of children, okay? About 30 centimetres, something like that. Okay, he makes a sword, double-bladed, blade, double and he straps it. But he's left-handed, so he straps it. Well, he straps it to his right thigh, under his clothes. Normally, because most people are right-handed... If you're wearing a sword, perhaps some of you boys have dressed up as knights or something. You wear a sword and it's on your left-hand side, don't you? So you can pull it out with your right hand and get fighting. But because he's left-handed, he goes on his right side. Now that's important because that means that the guards don't see it. Uh, So he straps on his sword and he brings, verse 17, the tribute to Eglon king of Moab. Moab, sorry. The tribute is all, all the money the Israelites have to pay to this conquering king, okay, to the big fat king. He wants money, he wants gifts from them, and Ehud brings it. And initially it seems that, presumably like every year beforehand, the gifts handed over and all is well. But verse 18, when he's finished presenting the tribute, uh, what does he do? He sends the people who carried the tribute away. But when he gets to the Gilgal, this place where all the idols are set up, perhaps there something triggers him, this place where he sees all the idols. And he turns back and he says, I have a secret message for you, king. And boy, does he. He does have a message. He does have a message from God. There's an irony here. There is a message for you, fat king who has conquered God's people. And greedy Eglon presumably thinks he's going to get a bit more money, a bit more gold, more jewels, more food, whatever it might be. And so Eglon, the fat king, sends out all his servants and invites Ehud alone into his chamber on the rooftop. And what happens? It's a great story, isn't it? Uh, Ehud says, I've got a message for you, O Eglon. And Eglon's so excited to see, verse 20, he rises from his seat. He gets up this big fat man, He can always imagine him sort of toppling forward, wanting to see the gold and the food and all the things he's been given, and Ehud pulls his sword, hidden from his left thigh, and thrusts it in to the fat king. It goes in so far, the fat closes over the blade. It's disgusting, isn't it? Okay, jabber the Hut. okay, with a lightsaber right into the stomach. And he falls down, dead. And honestly, this story is meant to be funny. It is gross, but it is kind of meant to make the Israelites chuckle. The fat king, the, the belly closing over it. Uh, verse 22, well, we use a, a verse called the English Standard Version, which is terribly polite. The excrement came out. Excrement, children, is, is poo. Okay. It all comes out all over the floor. Okay. Disgusting, smelly, in a hot country. Absolutely horrible. On your sheets, children, I sometimes, in the past, have put colouring in on the back. I could not find anything to colour in. Uh, And it's probably a good thing I couldn't. Uh, What does Ehud do? Well, he he comes out of the the secret chamber at the top, he closes the doors, and he disappears. And and the fat king's guards, uh, they think, well, he must still be in there. And then they say to themselves, well, it's been a long time, but, verse 24, surely he's relieving himself. Again, very polite way of putting it. Basically, they're saying, surely he's on the loo. They can smell the excrement they can smell the poo they think it's been a long time we're not going in there we'll just leave him be we don't want to disturb him but of course he's lying dead on the floor and that gives Ehud time to escape Now, we're not going to look in much detail at the rest of the story but Ehud goes out he calls the rest of Israel to join him and having killed the king uh, the rest of the Israelites join him and say okay well if you've killed the main bad guy we're in we're in for the fight and they come and they they, they, they retake the land and God gives them 80 years of rest, verse 30, as the story ends. Now, what on earth is that about? <laughs> it's, 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 it's funny, it, it's, it's sort of interesting. I'm sorry if you're grossed out, but you know, it's the word of God. What is it about? It's not in my children's, my children's kind of, you know, kids' Bibles, but it's the kind of story that I imagine is like kids loved. Let me tell you what the story is about. It is about the shamer Being shamed, the humiliator being humiliated. The the devil only has a couple of weapons to use against you. Uh, He is the the king of this world, as he's called in the New Testament. Uh, We don't need to fear a sort of fat king sat on the throne, but we do have an enemy who wants to conquer God's people, who wants to enslave God's people, who wants to shame God's people. He is Eglot, if you like. And how does he do it? Well, he's only really got a couple of weapons. He can tempt you. We'll think about that another time. But the other thing the devil can do is accuse you. He can shame you. That's what the devil means. It kind of means accuser. He is the ultimate Eglot. He shames you. I don't know how he does this. There's, there's not a lot of detail in the Bible about this. It's hard to work out. You know, can he whisper in your ear? Can he? I, I, I don't know. But somehow he can. He certainly can shame you. Uh, the voice comes. Huh, so you're a Christian, are you? That's funny. Thought Christians read their Bibles. Christi- Christian, are you? Even just a Christian believer. It's funny. I thought Christians prayed every day. Not a Christian, are you? That's very strange because I'm pretty sure Christians are meant to be virgins when they get married. Are oh, Christian? Are ye? That's funny because I'm sure I read that Christians love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Look at your heart. Whisper, whisper, whisper. Hiss, hiss, hiss. And the shame rises. The guilt rises. It is, if you like, the devil that sends the text. I know. I know what you did. The devil that sends the letters. I know the truth. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is given to convict God's people. It's a, it's a subtle but important difference. The Holy Spirit is meant to show us our sin. Like, Christians, we're not meant to, to pretend that we are sin free because you're not. But, but the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin in order that you might then go to Jesus. The devil condemns you. See the difference? The difference between conviction and condemnation. The devil says, despair, you are not good enough. God will not forgive that. Of course, he'll forgive John's sin. He'll forgive uh, a Zacchaeus, or he'll forgive a uh, Mary Mantellin, or, <laughs> but not you. Come on. And especially not now. I mean, he forgave you in the past, sure, but look how many times you've done this. There is a limit. You can't take God for a ride. Whisper, 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 hiss, hiss, hiss. Despair, he says. And again, that's where our, our sort of inheritance from Adam kicks in. Unless we're confident in the gospel, our temptation is to run and hide in the bushes. Okay, I'll distract myself from my sin by just being incredibly busy. And again, this is something, maybe you're not a Christian. could it be that, that actually so much of what you're giving your life to so what you, much of what you're pouring your energy into is in some way just trying to distract yourself from some of the things you know you do feel guilty about. Christians too. We sin and we run. We hide. And for others, we, we deny, well, there is no God. You get the 79 again, don't you, out there? Someone, you know, someone really confident like Ricky Gervais will just mock God openly. There is no God. And uh, he has swagger and bravado and. But none of us can avoid the fact that we just feel guilty, we feel this shame. It is a universal human experience. Why? Because it is real. But still, this doesn't sound like very good news, does it? We found a way in which our situation is like that of the Israelites In Judges three. We can see perhaps how Eglon and Satan are similar, but where's the good news? Well, the good news is in the defeat of this shamer, the defeat of this humiliator. Uh, come with me. If you've got a Bible, come with me on to the, to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Uh, Colossians and chapter two. Children, it's quite hard to find Colossians. It's quite a short letter. It's after all the Gospels and then Acts and then Romans and then Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. If you get things beginning with T, you've gone too far. So Colossians, in our church Bible, it's on page two, sorry, nine hundred and eighty-four. Let me read from Colossians two, verse thirteen. And you, Colossians two, thirteen. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses—that's sins, John. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here we see enemies again, rulers and authorities. Okay, that is not prime ministers and presidents and kings and queens. That is the, the evil spiritual forces that stand against us. Just how the word those words are used in, in Paul's letters. At the cross, Paul tells us, God disarmed these rulers and authorities and put them to shame, to open shame, triumphed over them, conquered them, humiliated them. How is the devil humiliated at the cross? How is the devil conquered at the cross? We, we talk about the cross as the place where um, God's wrath that our sin is paid for, and that is absolutely right. But it is also the place where the devil is conquered. It is not just the, the altar on which Christ gives himself as a sacrifice, it is it is the throne on which Christ becomes king, king over all other false lords. How? What do you see? Verse 14. God, in Jesus, cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But what can the devil do? He can tempt you, sure, as I've said, another day. Here, he can accuse make you despair. And he uses the law. Okay, he uses good, a good thing. The law is a summary way of saying that the way we're meant to live that God tells us in the Bible. The law is a good thing. It's good that God tells us to love him, heart, soul, mind and strength. It's good that we're told to love our neighbour. It's good we're told not to commit adultery, not to steal it and so on. These are good things and Satan uses it to crush you. And, and, and you end up with this sheet. Okay, children, imagine a big long scroll with all the things you've ever done and said wrong written on it. That's the record of debt that stood against us in verse 14 with all its legal demands. Everything you've ever done and said wrong on a big list of paper. And what does he do? Well, verse 14, he cancels it. It's like he rips it up. He nails it to the cross. I can't do that, but he nails it to the cross. So everything, everything you've done wrong, everything Satan could use to condemn you, God says it's gone. It's been nailed to the cross because Jesus has taken it on himself. His record is given to you and yours to him. And so Satan is, is naked, he's disarmed, he's ashamed. There is nothing left for him to accuse you with. He is shamed and has been triumphed over. Two illustrations of this. One from a world I'm a bit at home with, one from a world that I'm not at all at home with. Let me start with that one, the world of rap battles. Okay, Those of you who know me know that is not my world. Um... But it's an illustration I heard elsewhere, actually, years ago, and I just thought it was a really good one. Uh, it comes from a film that I've not seen. It's probably deeply inappropriate, so don't take this as a commendation. But uh, there is a film starring the rapper, Emin- rapper Eminem. Okay? Not even sure he's cool anymore, but whatever. T- two people, okay? and they, 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 they get on stage, and, and basically, as the music goes, they insult each other okay? in a kind of rap, a bit like a poem, children. Okay? So it's just an insulting poems. They shout at each other. Okay? i know <laughs> okay um and, and and the idea is if, if you if you can throw the most insults and, and shame the other person then you kind of win okay you win the, the, the rap battle jess is not a, um now at the climax of this film the, the guy the kind of hero of the film goes on stage and, and, and instead of actually saying all the kind of bad things about the other person he just lists everything bad about himself yeah sure I'm a delinquent. Yeah, sure, I dropped out of school. Yeah, I grew up in a, 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 you know, a single-parent family. Yeah, sure, so all these things. He lists all the things wrong with him and then just says, over to you. And his opponent, he's got nothing left. He's got nothing left to say. You can say to Satan, yes. Do you know what? Yes, I lust. Yes, I doubt. Yes, I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, I get angry. Yes, I don't pray as I should. Yes, I'm terrible at reading my Bible. But Jesus died for me, and that sheet is torn up. See, you're not denying it. You're not pretending. You're not running away. You're not hiding. You admit it, but Jesus has paid for it. That sheet has been torn up, Satan. Martin Luther, here's a word I'm a bit more at home with. Martin Luther, the great kind of theologian reformer, uh, tells him. his stories, you never know if they happened or if he's exaggerating, but he tells of waking up in the middle of the night and Satan was at the foot of his bed and Satan started listing all these things that, that Luther had drawn. You, the great reformer, you, the one who's trying to change the whole world, you, who's preaching the gospel, you, what about your own heart, Luther, On and on, Satan went listing Luther's sins. And Luther said he waited quietly until he'd finished. And then he said to him, thank you, Saint Satan. That is indeed a list of all my sins, and here are a few you've missed. But I have a king who is my righteousness. We don't need to hide. We don't need to be crushed. We don't need to despair because of our sins, because they have been painful, cancelled, taken away. Satan has been humiliated, even more so than fat King Eglon. Jesus, amazingly, the way Jesus did that was that he himself was humiliated for us. This is how much he loves you. He didn't conquer Satan just by coming down from heaven and, I don't know, zapping him or something. Of course he could do. But what does he do? He comes down and he lives as a man who is despised, rejected, scorned. He's a man who most would have been ashamed of, most were ashamed of. He's a man who eventually is stripped naked, no little loincloth like in the picture, stripped naked and nailed to a cross. Totally humiliated, on show for the world. Pinned to a cross. Dying in pain. Why? Not because he deserved it, but because you and I deserved it. And he loved you and wanted to take your place. That is how much he wants to forgive your guilt and your shame. The Son of God, the Son of God himself was shamed for you because of love for you. So he's not going to drive you away when you come to him. Whatever it is you've done, whatever it is you keep doing, bring it to him. I've said to a few of you just sort of personally over the years, one of the things that if you're an elder in a church or pastor or vicar or whatever you call them, one of the things you hear really often is, well, you know, if you knew what I was really like, you know there's no one like me. And it's so frustrating because you want to say, actually, thanks for telling me that, Sadie, but, but Amelia told me the same thing last week. Again, I'm picking two names of people aren't in the congregation. Yeah. You want to say, you're not the only one. You're not at all. I can't tell you, obviously, because I can't betray secrets. secret. That's, that's what we're all like. But far more importantly, God knows and he loves you and he has dealt with it. So there's no need to hide. No need to hide from him and no need to hide from each other. We don't need to be a church where we pretend to be perfect, pretend to be full of righteousness, pretend to never sin. Perhaps you are crushed at the moment. What do you do? Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to Fat King Eglon. Listen instead to God say to you I look at you in Christ. His record is yours. There is no shame, no condemnation. You are safe. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, Jesus there, who made an end to all my sin. Perhaps this morning for the first time, perhaps for the hundredth time, perhaps for the first time in a long time, you need to come to him and say, Lord, you are my only hope. You know what I'm like. And he is saying to me, you come, come with all your mess, with all your shame, with all your guilt, and I will clothe you. I will have you. I will restore you. I will take you safely home. Let's pray. Father God, the enemies against us are far too strong for us to conquer ourselves. The law does condemn us. Satan is right that we have fallen far short of what we should be. And we confess to you, we don't love you as we should. We don't love each other as we should. And that those are only the headlines of a multitude of other sins. And so we praise that you are, God, slow to anger, rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. We come to you now and pray once again that you would forgive us. I pray once again that we would know that we are clothed in Christ. He is our only hope. Teach us, we pray, therefore, not to listen to the condemnation of the devil but rather listen to your words of grace to us in the Bible. Strengthen our faith, our hope, and our love, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.